Good afternoon. It is Friday, May 7th. This is the Executive Girlfriends Group Call, and this is Chickie Fitzgerald, and I am pleased to introduce our special guest today, Carol Murray. And Carol wrote a very, very unique book, and it was the result of a very interesting uh, research assignment that she undertook, and the book is called Hitting Our Stride. Carol, welcome. Well, thanks. So tell us a little bit about yourself before we dive into talking about the book and the book project. Well, uh, let me keep it fairly simple. First of all, I do speak nationally and internationally. I'm a motivational humorist and also a business trainer. I've been married for 34 years to the man of my dreams, and he's never, ever um, come up short, ever. I live in Iowa. I have a couple Airedales, a couple cats. And um, I have a son who is married and is expecting his first child. So I get to be a grandparent here sometime in September. So I think the whole world is going to change on his axis, I understand, when that happens. So that's me. Absolutely. Uh, I have have not been a grandparent, but I became a parent at 40. So oh my. Uh, I can tell you that changed my life. So, Carol, have you always been funny? Have I always been funny? Um, odd. Uh, <laughs> I, I think <laughs> I think that's where it began. Um, I've always had a real different way of kind of looking at the world, uh, kind of sideways, and I find a lot of things very amusing and ponder on it. So I don't know. Sometimes I can, um, I think I've become more unedited the older I get. And I think that is where a lot of my humor is coming from now. I just kind of let it flow now. Well, that that's an, an interesting uh, approach, and you know, I think that the way that the internet has evolved in in being able to put put up videos and to be able to write unedited and unscripted uh, yes. actually has allowed a lot of people to come into their own. So uh, I am loving the medium definitely. So tell us about the project that led up to hitting our stride, and 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 why did you choose to undertake this book in in this particular fashion? Well, it was kind of uh, interesting. My it really essentially started with me trying to learn who my mother was. She had um, been diagnosed with cancer at the age of about 78. So I spent the next uh, six months going to her hometown, which is about an hour and a half away from where I live. And every Saturday I'd started interviewing her. And I got about 80 hours of interviews of just information about her family, where she came from, something that I could document for the family. And out of that, she gave me 15 life lessons that she believed in, and she wanted me to write her book for her since she was, had never mm-hmm. gotten around to it. The problem is I only agreed with three out of the 15. So that became a dilemma for me, but I did promise that I would write her book, um, at least get something out there in terms of reaching and touching women um, nationwide and hopefully internationally. So what I did was, is because I didn't agree with it, I wanted to find out what other women thought. So I had about 200 women on an email list that I've maintained pretty good close contact over the years. And I sent out a request, 19 questions, and I asked them if they would complete the survey honestly and get it back to me within like a six-week period. 168 of them responded. That blew me away. And what came out of that is kind of a... Uh, more of a confusion, the sheer honesty of their responses to the questions that I asked really blew me away, and I really was concerned about doing them honor. The problem was is I didn't know whose book I was going to write, their book, my mother's book, or mine. And so it took another three or four months thinking about it, noodling on it, and finally I figured out 
who was it that I was writing for, what do they look like, what do they do, what kind of job they have, do they have kids or not. And once I identified the one woman, then it became easy. And that's the result of where this book came from. And so the very first chapter of the book is called Stronger Than We Know. Yep. So what what put that front and center as the place to start? Because I wanted to start with a place of affirmation. There's so many of the comments that came back from the survey were negative, uh, had some sounds of just beaten down um, attitudes, and so I really wanted to come in with a place of strength, and it seemed to make sense to kind of lay that out in terms of identifying that first, knowing that we do have value, and once we have that in place, then we can start taking a look at what we perceive as our fears and our shortcomings from there. I just needed a strong foundation, and that's why I picked it first. And then you jumped right uh, kind of to the opposite end of the spectrum to talk yep. about fear and the unknown path. And, and I think that certainly uh, in today's culture and in today's economy, uh, that has to be the number one thing uh, that we're all facing of, of just, uh, you know, can things continue the way that they've been? Is this going to be a permanent condition? And, and what does the future look like? So what was the general consensus? Well, the general consensus um, had nothing to do with the economy. Let me give you some examples of what they actually came back. The question was, what scares you the most and what's your greatest personal fear? And I was really fascinated with what they came back with. In fact, some of them were so extreme, I felt like I needed to lock the door and never come out of my house again. But um, it seemed I put in the top, each chapter has like the top ten responses as I collated them together. The first one was losing those people that you love. So it wasn't fear of personal death. It was fear of losing the people around them. Being alone, unloved, rejected, and unappreciated. And I thought, because we're social beings, I wonder how easy it is for us to cut ourselves off from other people by maybe sometime by our actions or what we do. And this kind of surprised me that that came up as the number two fear that they had. The third one was getting old and not being able to take care of themselves or being financially secure. That rang through really loud and clear, and uh, it almost made me go out and buy some lottery tickets uh, when I would read that one. Another one was our children thinking it's normal to have sex immediately after they meet someone. So here we have these one, two, three huge, huge light things, and then it's like kids having sex too soon. I mean, it just moved right over there, and it kind of um, cracked me up because it's like, wow, the fears that we have, or we're wondering about the changes in the generations. And then the other one that really kind of got to me is with our heritage. Why would we expect any less of our children and their children? In other words, it's about moral values, wondering what is going on with the younger generation they're living a completely different life than what it is that we grew up with, and there seems to be some great concern there. Well, that would seem to lead in into your third chapter, which is called uh, A Soundbite World. And, and I have to just reflect for a minute because last night uh, I got home. I had been uh, out of town for a couple of days and was catching up on some of my TVOD TV. Um, one of my favorite shows is In Plain Sight. And for anybody who, who uh, watched it this week, it was the story of uh, someone who had gone into prison 40 years ago and then you know had, had gotten out. And it, 
a lot of it was about his observations about our culture today versus 40 years ago. And, you know, how nobody is polite anymore and, and everything is so fast and, and everybody's so fat, uh, you know, because all they do is sit around and play, you know, uh, video games or watch TV. And, and it was very, very interesting. So, you know, that may be a complete departure from a soundbite world, but it just reminded me of that, that here we are and, and just everything is so fast. Yes. And that's really what this boiled down, what their fear, this kind of came as a fear that came out there because they were really wondering about um, being hopeful, optimistic, but then information, everything is information driven. And we're wondering about it being so decisive, people making very, very quick decisions. It's like you don't even have time to think. And as a result of that, it's kind of moving into some chaos, changing. It's starting to get people really unsettled. I love the analogy of getting information um, shot at you through a fire hose. That's what they feel like. And I do a lot of technology instruction, marketing uh, development, especially for entrepreneurs, salespeople, that type of thing. And what I want to do is to be able to help them get steady, that instead of having the environment push you in a direction that somehow you need to get yourself anchored, find out what it is that you do well, and then within the maelstrom, how can you go ahead and actually thrive? So it's kind of fascinating. I ended this chapter. I had a lot of fun taking seven pages and then moving it down to a 140-character tweet just because mm. that's what the soundbite is in our right. environment. Still trying to get used to it. <laughs> so then, then we uh, step way back to uh, Chapter 4, which is about impressions from mother. So is this where uh, your mother's section came in? Um, no, surprisingly enough, um, I wanted to get an idea. My my mother and a lot of information about my mother is fairly limited in the book because it's mostly about her ideas about life lessons that I chose to really latch on and leave that for a legacy for her. So what I wanted to do is see what other people or women had learned from her mother. First one, number one, do it right the first time. That was the most quoted for most people, and I love this one. Make sure you can always take care of yourself financially, rely upon no one, not even your husband. And I thought that was fascinating about just standing strong. So they really emphasized a lot about the job isn't beneath you. And what's interesting is I was hearing the same thing from my mother and her generation. Choose your battles, take care of yourself because nobody else will. Never forget you're a couple first. You need to work at any kind of relationship to maintain it and have them flourish. And the one that I really kind of just grinned at when they said it, nobody likes a smartass. Um, that came up more often than I can possibly imagine. And it's because what we do is I like someone who's smart. It's that twinkle in the eye that they've got this joke and they're just going to say something to see if they can get a rise out of someone. And I happen to really appreciate that. But it's interesting that maybe not in the business world is it really appreciated when someone is, quote, unquote, yanking your chain. And I'm going to share one with you that will hopefully make you laugh because it did me. I, I laughed out loud. And here's what this person learned from her mother. Do not stare at people who have disabilities or your children may be born with the same thing. Oh, wow. And I'm going, what? What? <laughs> That's her life lesson. That's what she learned. Wow. Uh -huh. Interesting. Interesting. So um, you said that, that your discussions uh, with your mom really didn't make it into the book, but um, 
did you also ask the same kind of question about fathers, or, or was it just asking the mother's influence? No, actually I did. Um, that shows up in Chapter 6 called Father's Rules because I really um, wanted to see what type of things did they learn differently from their father. And I found uh -huh. that it really moved into a very um, pragmatic mindset. In fact, the lessons were um, fundamental to relationships like uh, keep your word. Hold true to your commitments and your obligations. Um, anything worth having in life is worth working for. So there was this really this kind of this attitude throughout their um, statements is just roll up your sleeves. If you can't pay cash, you can't afford it. Uh, as long as you eat at my table and live under my roof, you'll be respectful of me. So what I heard a lot through the father um, is more of this strength. Do what you're told. It's good to be seen, but maybe necessarily not heard. Stay out of trouble. Um, make sure that you're following the law. Those type of at that type of level, and I thought that was kind of fascinating. So uh, your next chapter was then do as I say, not as I do. So yeah. where, where does that come from? Well, that was you may learn something from your mother, and that's what they're telling you. So do everything right the first time, and then you learn the things from your father, like. Don't break the law because there's police logs and everyone in town will know what you're doing. Well, then I thought, what did you actually learn by watching your parents? What was it when the two came together? Because I think that there's a harmony or a discordance that will happen one way or the other. And so it was interesting where this went. The tone primarily was you don't have to have money to be wealthy. So there was a lot of an undercurrent of love. Love can be expressed beyond words. Things aren't always what they appear to be. So what happens behind closed doors, maybe the public doesn't know. So I was seeing some things about hidden information, but it wasn't always bad news. It was just that we're highly, highly private. But then you get these honest statements like it's tough to love people with mental illness. And that just hurts. I mean, that really hurt when I was thinking about what this woman um, had to deal with or as children how we're really resilient about watching what's going on, one spouse working with another, either trying to protect each other or to build something sound. But it came and went into more of a direction of just love, the environment of the family. It was really well, different. And I, I jumped over, and, and not on purpose, but just because we had the mother-father thing going. Uh, chapter 5 is about reflections of the past. So yeah. Um, we have talked a lot uh, within the Executive Girlfriends Group and, and uh, recently at a retreat that we did uh, about the impact that your past has on you and whether that is your personal past and family and, and your environment growing up or, or whether it's actually your business past of, of things that people have said or done to you that, that you're carrying forward and you really need to be able to shake them off. Uh, is that what Reflections of the Past looked at, is what you've brought to where you are today and, and how that has shaped you? Well, what this was was me actually doing honor to my mother's story. So mm -hmm. it's about six pages long, and it talks about from 1923, I took these 80 hours and built it down to a pure synopsis of what it is. What It's hard to be able to share that quickly, what happened to this, but my mom grew up in an environment where she had a lot of brothers and sisters. She was the oldest girl. She was expected to take care of the brothers and sisters, and at one point uh, when she was 15, her seventh brother, George, was born, and he was born with a heart condition, 
And I'd like to just read you this passage because I think it defines everything that became my mother for the rest of her life. At age 15, Dolores' seventh brother, George, was born with a heart condition. He cried incessantly, especially at night while Dolores cradled the infant in her arms. She couldn't rest, afraid she might roll over the baby in her sleep. At the age of six months, George died of a heart attack during the middle of the night while Dolores slept. Dolores looked at the small bundle in her arms when she awoke and understood why she had slept through the night for the first time in weeks. She never recovered from the guilt, seeing that small, pallid face, tiny hands lying peacefully beside the emaciated body. Dolores vowed to find a way to go to school and become a nurse. And at the age of 17, she left the small town, Wisconsin, and she went to the big town, Chicago, um, borrowed money, and she entered the Michael Reese Hospital in Chicago as a student. Over 100 ladies um, entered in her first year, and only, I believe, 10 graduated. It was horrendous, her training. It was exceptional, her training, and it set a standard for her that actually guided her for the rest of her life to helping people because of her small brother who died in her arms. It's wow. just an honor to her. That's powerful. Mm-hmm. So the next chapter is about the family connection. I mean, you've talked about a lot about family uh, already. So what were the, the key nuggets there? Well, the best thing is, is the question was, how does it, what does it take to build a strong, positive family that actually stays connected? And really what I did was get a few short statements, communication, unconditional love, shared experiences like meals and reunions, stay connected, being dedicated to each other, having respect, and then finally forgiveness. It really resonated with them. And then we had to go into, of course, the next question, which is what do you believe destroys the unity of a family? Because some of Mm -hmm. us come from splintered families, and we know that it could be because there's not very constructive communication. Self-absorption and selfishness was huge. Many women responded to that. Disengagement by the parents or between family members when you're not geographically close, disrespect, secrets, and gossips, and then negative emotions and bitterness. And it was interesting. I got more fervent responses to what destroys the unity of the family than I did for those that said what builds it stronger. And, of course, that creates a little bit of a concern for me that way. Hmm. So the next one is about life-altering decisions. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think uh, a lot of us can can think about the things in in our lives that have have created a uh, an alter uh, altering situation, both positive and negative. And in in my own family, we we adopted a three year old little boy from Russia uh, when Ooh. my daughter was five, and my husband and I were I think forty six and fifty two, wow. uh, respectfully. So you know, it, it totally changed our lives. And so the decision to add to our family in that particular way. Uh, was a big impact. So mm-hmm. what, what kind of things came up? Well, the question was, what's the hardest decision you ever had to make? Um, it was interesting. Women walking away from the marriages came over again and again and again, finding that they really needed to find healthier and more positive relationships. Um, it was the hardest decision, but it ended up being the most positive decision. Uh, another woman admitted to being an alcoholic, and finally getting treatment and getting sober. Uh, Another woman indicated that she stopped radiation and she had to just let her husband go. Putting parents in nursing homes was another huge decision. 
or mm-hmm. operating on a parent. So it was interesting going through this leaving jobs, having a baby at a young age, um, or carrying a child that was destined to be deformed. They were so specific in what they put down here. Um, the one that kind of got me the most was uh, going to a therapist when I clearly needed to. Listen to the mm-hmm. call of that. These decisions were where do we get the clarity that we finally are able to stand, take a clear look at ourselves, and just figure out that we're the only ones and it's the only life we're going to get and that we're just going to have to um, figure out what we're going to do and how we're going to move forward. And mm-hmm. it, was, it was very humbling to me. Well, and, and that, that clearly leads into your next one, which which is all about second chances. Yeah, yeah. I um, it's it's. I think I started with this when someone came up to me once after a, a course. I was around fifty years old. I was teaching technology, and they said, oh, "Isn't it just wonderful that a woman of your age actually knows this stuff?" And at that point, that's when I realized. Oh, I'm old. She was like 25 years old, and I hadn't gotten old in my own brain yet. And I'm thinking, well, wait a minute, are you more astounded that a 50-some-year-old woman could actually Twitter and actually know about technology and doing that? Or is it just the fact that I'm old that shocks you? I didn't know. So what I wanted to do was look at what would I do differently. You know, I, I wish I had drive-by liposuction. Wouldn't that be awesome? You know, just pull up like the Starbucks is there, get your coffee, and then liposuction like your chin or something like that. Anything to keep me looking young. Um, I, I don't know if I would do that because I'd probably have to stay there too long. But um, the one thing that they do different in their life, if we could, without any restraints, and the one that shocked me, and I had to put it as number one, was this. I would not have had children. God doesn't have a return policy. And I went, whoa. And I thought, wow, what a horrible mother. And then I had to sit back and think, no, that that might not be it at all. Because really, she she could have given and set aside her entire life for her kids. My mother did. My mother had five children. She had four kids under the age of two, two sets of twins, 18 months Uh apart. So you look at this and say she never fully was able to be or become what she wanted to become, or maybe they were rotten kids. It's possible to have truly horrible rotten kids, or maybe she wasn't well enough to be able to handle this or so much stress and anxiety trying to take care of them. I don't know, but I thought it was just really fascinating with the second chances that those mm-hmm. seem to center on about patience, forgiving themselves. And then I had only three comments out of 168 that said, I wouldn't change a thing. I have oh. lived a life of no regrets. And that's how I chose to enter the chapter, second chances, because I realized that we're not naive. We've right. learned the power of our voice, and we're survivors. Huh. Very interesting. Well, it's interesting that you talk about about the uh, the age issue because uh, the other day, and I don't even remember where I was, but I, I was in a restaurant somewhere, and and the person who was waiting on me kept saying, "You know, you look just like the Barefoot Contessa on the Food Channel," <laughs> and I'm thinking, "Oh, well, Contessa, this sounds pretty cool." <laughs> and then I taped it because I, I I had never seen it before, and I see that she's kind of fat and dumpy and old. <laughs> <laughs> I was go, like, oh, okay, so that's ew. how he saw me. <laughs> and uh, when when I had Kira, I, w- I was 40. And uh, I, I've told this story on the call before that I, uh, about, I don't know, four or five days after I brought her home from the hospital, 
went to uh, Michael's MJ Designs and was getting some things, and I had her in her little uh, carrier. Uh-huh. And the whole time I was pregnant, because it was a high-risk pregnancy, uh, because I had gone through infertility treatments, uh, I hadn't colored my hair. And so somebody asked me how old my granddaughter was, and I, I drove straight to Eckerd's and bought hair color and went home and colored my hair, you know, because oh, wow. <laughs> it's like, okay, I'm not ready to be old at 40. Uh, but it's funny how that uh, that does impact us. But I do like to drive by liposuction uh, after I think it works. Uh, <laughs> I think someone's going to make a fortune. They're going to hear this, and they're actually going to go do it. I just don't know if there's long enough cords. You know, I, I don't know. Just something, just something to think about. <laughs> All right. Well, the next one, uh, we actually have a, a number of people who are kind of in between successes and, and trying to decide what their next step is going to be or, or watching uh, you know, a business that they've been trying to make work, uh, you know, get to the stage where it's ready to jump off. And career challenges is the next one. So uh, what was the consensus? Well, the consensus was, and when I asked them what are the top challenges they face in their work or career, is first of all, lack of respect for their abilities and competing in a male-dominated environment. That was number one, um, significantly high in terms of that. And I, I remember being in that position. I've been a supervisor, manager. I've been an entrepreneur for the last uh, 20-some years out there managing up to 190 employees. And I do remember sometimes my opinion didn't count whatsoever, and it was really frustrating. But I do not believe with the younger people that I've talked to that this is necessarily the case anymore. Now it's what do we bring to the table and how succinctly are we able to communicate across genders. And um, so let me give a little hint everyone out there because I actually did a lot of reading on this and chatted with several men, called them up afterwards, and um, a lot of men will have rest time with their brains. This has been documented. We have 20% more blood flow in the female brain than a man does. So when I asked my husband when he's sitting on the couch what he's thinking, and he says nothing, he really is. He's thinking nothing. And what they need to do in order to keep that brain activated is to be in motion. That's why they do a lot of the deals in the golf course, basketball course, throw a ball back and forth, walking. So I found the best way to get a lot of information and communication is to now start taking walks with my husband. And he's like a chatterbox the whole time we're out there. And as soon as we stop and we settle, so I found that was kind of interesting. Career challenges, time management, organization, life balance, a big, big, big one for them because they're expected to do everything all the time. And here's another suggestion I might have for everyone out there. I have not cooked in 34 years. I made my mother's meatloaf. She used to get distracted. She'd play bridge by herself at the table. She'd put meatloaf in the oven. It's about a four-pound meatloaf for five kids, and she'd cook it at 450 degrees for about four to five hours. It would come out hard as a rock, and we'd have to saw and gnaw on it. This is truth. This is truth. And I thought it was wonderful. It was just like meatloaf jerky. That's what it was. And then I ended up uh, making it for the first time after my husband and I had gotten married when we came back from the honeymoon, and he had the audacity to tell me I burned it. It was perfect. Absolutely. It clinked and everything when it hit the plate. So he said he'd cook the meatloaf for me the next night again as to how it was supposed to be cooked, and I could put my fork through it, and I thought he was trying to poison me. I really did. Salmonella, you know, bad news. Um, I, I, it was horrible. So he just took over the cooking after that. So there's little ways to get around some of the stressful part of it is this you can maybe just not be very good at it. It, it works. How funny. How very funny. That that actually works in my household uh, on the laundry <laughs> front. 
Uh, there you go. Uh, I am not very good at laundry. So Fridays are laundry day in the household, and my husband uh, has been at it all day long. Yeah, that's that's just the way it works. We let them thrive. Let them thrive. So uh, as we come into the home stretch here, we've got a business hazard or safety zone. Yeah, that's actually about employee retention. It's one of the biggest issues that we have at this point and wondering about our work environment, whether it's strong, it's positive, and having the HR background that I have, having do some consulting work, I go into some companies and just take a look at the managerial teams and how they're actually relating and communicating the people that's with them. Well, the thing that came in that they really wanted was strong, uplifting leaders who support their employees by listening and having the courage to make and back up tough decisions, act with enthusiasm, and are fair in their treatment of the employees. So it's it, they're not asking for much. They want respect. And I like the look. I always keep thinking of the movie Independence Day. And Bill mm-hmm. Pullman is the president of the United States. And when he gets up on that car and he tells them, this is our Independence Day, or Braveheart running up and down in front of his troops, I still get chills on my arms. Now, I, I would probably just be leaping up and waving my arm and say, follow me and try to do that. But, you know, with leadership, it's so important that at least we're listening and we're respecting people and we're not just trying to tweak them all the time, focusing on their weaknesses. So what this is, is business hazard or safety zone? How safe do you make it for the people that you work with? How safe do you make it for them to build and to grow? And then what do you do that might destroy it, and that could be micromanaging or not mm-hmm. staying on top of what's actually going on with their individuals. So um, I really wanted to explore that, and they were very straightforward. And again, all of their responses are listed at the back of the book, so you can see the complete range other than what I just summarized. Well, I think it's it's really masterful, Carol, how you have wound all this together. And, and the next one uh you know, comes from the business world and then, you know, right back to what's really important, and that is being grateful for simple things. Yeah. And I think every everyone, uh, particularly with what we've gone through in the last, uh, you know, 12 to 18 months or a little bit longer for some of us, um, is we've been forced into a time when we have had to shed ourselves of, of a lot of the things that cluttered our lives and uh, really have seen the simple things for the first time in a long time. Mm-hmm. Yep, and I think uh, what they really rejoiced in was things as simple as volunteerism, being heard. Uh, Many of them indicated about the spiritual awakening that they're seeing across the country and the world. So it's about basically what can you do to revel in what's happening around you. I just started walking around the neighborhood, and um, the smell of the lilacs was incredible. I had to just stop and just breathe really deeply. I'm always running 100 miles an hour. I travel about 265 days a year. So to be here in my neighborhood and just walk around and enjoy what's here, it's been an absolute delight. Well, the next one is one you're about to go into personally, which is the next generation. Not if I can help it. <laughs> hey, the new I grandbaby. I tore up the ARP card. This is a woman who tore her ARP card up <laughs> until we realized we could have gotten a movie discount, okay? We weren't real pleased about that. Um, actually, what this is is concentrating on our children, um, right. actually what's happening and what do they wish to have happen for their children. 
And what they came back with is that they wanted their children to live with no regrets. We're giving them more permission to be greater than themselves and what they think is possible. And the one that I really had to laugh at was purchase good insurance was the advice that this one person had for all of the next generation. So it's about how do you cover yourself against all the hazards that are coming into their lives. I thought that was really kind of fun. But again, it's about ownership, being brave and revealing the feelings that we might have for our children, and then not thinking that any learning experience is too trivial, that you never know when you might prevent something that could really make a difference to them later on in their life. So it's basically what is their wish that they would have for their kids. Mm. Well, and so that comes in into Chapter 15. And, and again, I think the way you've organized this has just been wonderful, uh, the benefit of hindsight. Well, it's, the question was, what are the top life lessons women would benefit from knowing? And so this is where they just purely laid out some straightforward advice. So let me share some of those with you quickly. The first one, um, these are the ones that hit home with me, a simple truth. First, don't be a martyr for your children. It weakens your self-worth. The man you marry may be your Prince Charming. However, he may not have the Prince's bank account. Don't be afraid of being alone. You can't please everyone. Embrace change without whining. Surround yourself with people who are smarter than you are. The answer is always no if you don't ask. Life is a banquet. Don't starve. Not making a decision to do something is a decision itself. When you're a size 8, you're not fat. Now that I'm size 16, I wish I would have spent more time enjoying when I was a size 8. You have to learn to control your attitude or it will control you. And it's often rare that one can choose how they die, but you certainly can choose how you live. And the final one, stop comparing yourself to others. Compete against yourself. Be better today than you were yesterday. And I thought those were just very heartfelt, very straightforward and um, a lot of it has to do with personal courage. Oh, absolutely. Well, that's, uh, again, just very, very powerful. And then the last chapter, well, actually, no, there are two more. Uh, My Own Straight Talk, which sounds like it's it's from from your heart. It's a rant. I just went all over the place with this. I talked about beauty and moved into some of the reality shows and talking about what's going on and some of the loss of dignity that we've been seeing, like a super nanny. I mean, I don't know if I'd ever invite anybody in my home to see how rotten I'm raising my children. I mean, I, I just don't know <laughs> if I could do that. Um, wife swap. I mean, my husband's been trying to sign me up for years, but they won't take me. I, I don't know what that is. Or The Bachelor, <laughs> the Jerry Springer, the Mary Povich um, program. And so all these different things, I just had a lot of fun going through that, so it is just very generally a rant. And then that last chapter is finally essential truths as they took all of this, pulled it all together. If you have a moment, would you be interested in hearing just my reality checklist of what I think are the essential truths? Absolutely. Well, let's get started with the first one then. You're not the center of the universe, but part of a greater collective humanity. What hurts others ultimately harms you. Number two, your actions and words impact others. Try to take complete responsibility for how you interact with people and the decisions you make. Once that happens, I believe we're set free to live an unhampered life. Another one is the past can't be changed. You're a brand new person each day that you wake up. The experiences for the current moment mold you so you can face the challenges of the next day. Everything that happens to you has a purpose. It's up to you to learn the lesson and then move on. Create opportunity by the attitude you wear. I also think people need to earn the right to be part of someone's life. I don't want you to suffer entitlement attitudes. 
provide good and fair exchanges of personal value, and then hope that your offering is recognized and that access to friendship is actually returned. It, takes, it makes great sense not to make room for harmful, toxic people in your life. Number seven was refuse to be a victim of circumstance or any career situation. You set your path by the decisions you make and the personal ethics that you hold. Finally, the last one out of the ten, let emotional calm rule when chaos surrounds you. People are counting on you to have emotional balance, step back, observe, and react to accurate information. So what I tell people, and I think probably the best way and what this book is about and hopefully the next one I'm working on, I'd like you to just think about settling. Women run forward in their lives on the balls of their feet. We're always moving our shoulders just like football players. Something grabbed in our arms and off we go. Keep going, we keep going, we keep going. And I'd like you to think about this, that if you have a chance to stand, do so on the balls of your feet. You know that's what we're doing already. And then settle back onto your heels. Anchor yourself completely to the ground. Feel the ground come up through your soles of your feet and up through your shoulders. And what you will create is a foundation of strength. And then you'll find peace in that. And when you have that, that's when you're going to find respect. That's when you're going to find trust. And I think you're going to be able to find joy rushing towards you, getting yourself settled. Don't let the world push you. You find your space and you own it completely. That's what this is about. And that's what these women taught me. Oh, Carol, that was absolutely wonderful. Uh, again, her book is called Hitting Our Stride. And uh, Carol, um, how can folks uh, find out more about you? Your your email is actually on the website, and uh, hopefully uh, you can get in there and update your phone and contact information. I sent you the invitation to the Executive Girlfriends Group site yesterday. Okay. Um, and and that that will make it simple. But but if they want to learn more about uh, your your speaking, and you know we've got a number of people uh, on the group who will listen to this, um, not live, but uh, to download it. So um, could you give them some information about your website? The website is at www.karel.com. That's Carol spelled my mother's way. So karel.com. You can find out about the book going to www.hittingourstride.net. So that's the book website. It can be purchased on Amazon.com or come directly right. through my website. And it's also on the Executive Girlfriends Group Book Club cool. uh, site. Great. So that got it available for purchase there as well. All right, Carol. Well, it has been terrific, and I am going to turn off the recording because the rest of what is said on the egg call stays on the egg call. You got it.